the place to get all of your Paul all of the time. I'm your host Sam Wiles and remember this is widescreen podcasting. This is widescreen podcasting. Thank you all for listening in. I hope you're all well, safe and sound. Today everyone after several book reviews and a delay to talk about Get Back even more than we already had, we are back to review another blooming book. I don't think I've ever read more material about the Beatles at any one time in my life, especially since I started this podcast. And whilst I've been enjoying stretching out the old brain muscles and, dare I say it, learning some new stuff, I will admit that there is also a part of me that is looking forward to switching off my brain and doing another Listen With Sam episode, hint, hint, for next week. In all seriousness, though, we are indeed here today, here today, to dig our collective fangs into what was the biggest Beatles book release of the year, until Paul McCartney, the lyrics came out, which is the companion coffee table text to Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back on Disney+, Plus, titled rather similarly as The Beatles Get Back by The Beatles. In this episode, as you may have guessed, I will go into the backstory of this release, the contents within, and, of course, give my overall review at the end. As always... We're hardly reinventing the wheel here, though unlike the majority of the other reviews of this book, I have instead decided to wait until after the release of Peter Jackson's docuseries. Be prepared to hear me say that word a lot in this episode. But yeah, I wanted to do this after that was released, after it debuted, just so I could give it the best, most well-rounded review possible. Also, At the start of this episode, I must give a huge shout-out to Callaway Publishing Limited, who were kind enough to send me a free copy. Yeah, that's right, you heard correctly. A free copy of this not-too-cheap book for me to review. I know that they would have probably preferred me to have reviewed this book before the docuseries came out to be with the hype, but the numbers 
do not lie in this instance. And I know that people are still very interested in this series, especially with an imminent Blu-ray release around the corner, supposedly. And it's still going to be one of the most talked about things on the internet. It's still all over Twitter right now. And I reckon this review will mean more now to the hordes of casual fans who are just discovering Get Back rather than the loyal fans who will have already decided whether they were going to buy this or not. But yeah, for once I'm not thanking my lovely Patreon subscribers and instead I must tip my hat and offer my most sincere gratitude to the kind folks at Callaway Publishing Limited for making me feel like I am somewhat of an influencer in this game. It was an incredible feeling when I managed to contact the staff there for them to take me seriously enough to consider sending it and, you know, when I came home one day and the big old box was waiting for me, I just had the biggest grin from cheek to cheek. Right, before we can finally put Get Back to Bed, at least for a while, we must first settle the matter of the... Housekeeping! So, what do we have in terms of news this week? Well, first of all, we've had the announcement of the 50th anniversary of Wildlife. Yes, happy birthday, Wildlife, you underrated gem that you are. And of course, as with McCartney 1 and Ram, Paul has decided to re-release the album with a half-speed remaster. Very exciting stuff indeed. I already pre-ordered my copy the moment I saw it. Uh, I've already got the half-speed copy of Ram as well. And my local friendly vinyl shop has a copy of McCartney 1 as well, so I'll definitely be, be picking that up. Nice to have the whole collection there, but you know, what's better than wildlife? wildlife that sounds slightly better you know um, I've heard some people say that the half-speed remaster of Ram did sound quite different so I'd be interested to see what they do with this one so yeah folks go online right now check out you uh, try and get your limited copies of the wildlife half-speed remaster if that's your bag now the other major piece of news this week is that two of Paul McCartney's bass guitars are up for auction no, sadly, it's not the Bill Black upright bass, <laughs> you know, so we can stop talking about it. No, so the first one is the Hofner bass, one of his Hofner basses. I don't know if it's the original Beatles one, but uh, it's an autographed one, and it is going on sale in an auction in LA on the 30th of January. It's also taking place online as well. And the pre-auction estimate of this bass guitar is put at around four to six thousand dollars. Now that leads me to believe it's not one of the original Hofner basses and probably just one of the many ones he's used to tour with over the years. But also in this auction, you've got one of Keith Richards' very first Gibson ES355s as well. So it, you know, very interesting stuff. And then. Also, this week it was announced that Paul McCartney's Yamaha BB1200 bass is also up for auction. And this is part of a large music and memorabilia um, auction. And it's part of the Van Eaton Gallery's Guitar Icons, a musical instrument auction to benefit Music Rising. And apparently it's to help musicians, you know, kind of smaller ones, restore their livelihoods around New Orleans and the surrounding regions who have suffered through the pandemic. A very good cause indeed. Now, this bass guitar is the one that Paul used during the Back to the Egg sessions and Tug of War. Uh, there's even a picture of Paul playing it at Montserrat with Stevie Wonder right here. And yeah, oh my God, it's gorgeous, isn't it? You know, that, that deep brown, almost reddish color. Uh, it also says here it was used on McCartney 2 as well. And the opening bid, folks, the opening bid, so it's going to get much higher than this, is $20,000. So, you know, if you were still dubious as to whether the Hofner I just mentioned was an original, well, the fact that one of his Yamahas from the Wings and early Solar era is going for $20,000, yeah, I think we can safely assume that. You know, it's not a Hoffner from the Beatle era because I could picture that going for an opening bid of about $50,000. But yeah, lots of uh, philanthropy and charity work from Paul here. Also, he's just cleaning out his closet, I guess. 
Anyway, enough of the news. Let's get through the plugs. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Haven't had uh, much correspondence in a while. Maybe you're all just busy watching Get Back and hopefully listening to this pod. Who knows? But if you've got anything to say, if you've got a McCartney story, some trivia, some factoids, maybe you want to correct something I said on the show, maybe you want to talk about one of my reviews, talk about some music coming up in the future, I'd love to read it out on the show. Drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter for day-to-day updates at McCartneyPod. Follow the blog. If you want some bonus Paul or Nothing content in the written form, you can find that at paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on our socials on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, simply by typing in Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. And of course, on YouTube, it is the only place where you can find brand new episodes of Macca in your attic. Check out the latest episode where me and Lonnie Pena from the When We Was Fab podcast go through his incredible Beatles room and make me incredibly green and jealous. Really fantastic episode. I love that very much. Go check that out at, you know, on the YouTube page by typing in Paul Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. If you want to help out the show right away in a way that takes less than 30 seconds, please leave us... You know, a thumbs up, a like, give us some stars, maybe even write us a nice little review. It's always greatly appreciated. I've, you know, it always warms the cockles of my cold, dead heart when I see that someone's liked a video or liked the podcast or said something nice about it. You know, it always helps out in the algorithms. It always helps show us off to a new potential audience. And hey, if you want to leave us a podcast review on Apple or on Spotify, that would also be much appreciated as well. Thank you very much, folks. And finally, if you want to help support the podcast directly, if you want to help see the show grow, if you want to help fund new equipment, help me get new product to review, maybe want to help just keep the lights running or even just throw a couple of dollars at my face down the internet every month because you like the show so much and all the quote-unquote hard work I put into it, then please consider becoming a member of our wonderful Patreon family. Of course, as you know, Patreon is the platform which you, the public, can support independent content creators such as moi. Though it is not just a pointless GoFundMe, you do get your money's worth, you get access to Paul and I think episodes two days early, you get access to Mac it in your attic a week early, you get access to the Paul or nothing video feed, so anything that I do over over uh, Zoom or anything like that immediately gets uploaded to the feed, so you know, sometimes unedited conversations can go up there weeks, sometimes months early, you get instant access to that, you get access to bonus and lost episodes of the podcast, as well as all the Paul Mc- all the Paul or Nothing scripts that I do for each episode. I'm working my way through uploading all of those as well. So if that interests you, if you want to help support the show financially, then please consider joining the Patreon page, you know, it's always appreciated. But before we get on with the show, I cannot go any further without thanking my Patreon family, including Mr. D. Dubs, Andy Cochran, Guy Jenkinson, Nancy Twoey, Richard Campbell, Christopher Newman, Mrs. P., Broderick Harper, Moti Ryber, Richard Shuley, Christian Perry, Richard Driver, Chris Atkinson, Richard Binnington, Mr. B., Teresa Brader, Stephanie Miller, Lou DiLonardo, Cheryl McCoy, Katrina S., Sam Hode, Anastasia L., Warren Butson, and Matt Phillips. Anyway, folks, now that all of the housekeeping is done, it is once again time for us to return to the written word of Paul McCartney slash The Beatles. And, yeah, let's get back, as they say. Right, as with all the recent literature-based episodes of this podcast, it's time for an overly long background segment. Now, this isn't the first coffee table book directly tied to a Beatles-related documentary that I've ever owned. Nope. The first one that I've ever had the fortune to have be bought for me one Christmas, possibly coming up to a decade ago now, was the companion book to Martin Scorsese's George Harrison Living in the Material World, and I have been madly in love with it ever since. Though, rather fortunately for me, the only real point of comparison I would be able to feasibly make between the two would be the copious amount of photographic material contained within, as rather shrewdly, this new The Beatles Get Back book is not a behind-the-scenes making of text, nor an expansion of the materials explored in the film, directly at least. Instead, rather ingeniously, might I add, the main meat of this book is simply a direct translation of the real-life conversations that the Beatles had in 1969. But yeah, 
As I laboriously detailed in my Paul McCartney The Lyrics review, I am a self-confessed terrible reader and I've always preferred podcasts when it comes to learning about the Beatles et al. And so when I opened the book and found out it was essentially just the words as they were spoken across the entire Get Back Let It Be sessions, which to me is basically one long podcast with musical interludes, I was genuinely elated. The words the Beatles use, their phrasing, their rapport with each other, their wit, their humour, their references, and even the way they swear has always been of the utmost fascination to me. I know this is a lot of adulation because of who they are, and I might not care of how they may have particularly spoken had they not been the Beatles, but their genius flows through every asset of their being, including their language and their dialogue and their dialect. And to have a book made up entirely of that is both a fun experiment and a tantalising prospect, and will be undoubtedly a uniquely helpful resource in the future, both for casual fans and for people who make podcasts. What's also cool is that on the cover and the opening of the book, it says, by the Beatles, which is not only a lovely sentiment, but wholly appropriate based on the content therein. Again, harkening back to the lyrics episode, I always prefer to hear the story from the horse's mouth, and whilst the Beatles here aren't literally telling the story of these sessions because they're literally living it, and whilst the narrative has had to be strung together by the editors of this book and Peter Jackson, it's clear, even before you start reading this, that having their literal words will not only help in fill the gaps of the narrative that we already kind of know, but also add a nuanced layer of useful and in-depth slash superfluous information that will give the reader a far more well-endowed perspective of the sessions. On the whole, I was very much looking forward to this release. First of all, it was going to be a fun sneak peek at what was going to be in Jackson's docu-series. You know, there was an awful lot of speculation of, you know, what was and wasn't going to be in his three-parter, and our first clues would, have, of course, been in this book. Secondly, there was the possibility of, of a certain incongruence with the docu-series in the sense that there may be stuff in the book that wasn't included in the films and vice versa. And the idea of having even more to learn, both before the release and after, was certainly something I was looking forward to. And thirdly, there was the read-along aspect. You know, very rarely as adults do we ever get story time. And I can honestly say that I was very excited to have this big old book beside me whilst I was watching the series. You know, going through it scene by scene, exchange by exchange, and having a far more interactive experience. I mean, it would be more like a tactile form of subtitles, and I know that it would make the interactions stick far more in my mind than simply just watching it. And besides, subtitles rarely ever line up directly, and so being able to go through all three parts and absorb it fully at my own pace was just such a fun prospect, you know? It's important to have fun as well as learn during all of this, you know? Finally, there was the fact that this was the second book about these sessions this year. Of course, I'm referring to the book that was included in the Let It Be 50th Anniversary box set. And whilst both books were clearly going to be about different topics and be presented in drastically different ways, there was also a part of me that was interested in both how they conveyed the same time period, in what ways they diverged from each other, and finally, how together they, again, offer an even more high-definition picture of the events when used together. Anyway, on to the contents of the book itself, and let's begin with the very first thing you see, which, of course, is the cover. Now, when this was first revealed, I found it to be very striking indeed, as I was more or less completely unaware of the colourful background used during the Twickenham sessions, mostly due to the grainy-ass copy of Lindsay Hogg's Let It Be that I'd seen. And so, upon seeing those colours, I was taken quite aback. Of course, thanks to the wonderful HD restoration of the footage that Jackson did, I now know that the fantastic Technicolor display on this cover was also behind the Beatles during every sequence in the Twickenham studio, 
And I think that even I, as a self-declared Beatles fan, didn't immediately associate it with that particular moment is exactly why it is so eye-catching. You see the words, the Beatles, and a colour scheme you're not immediately familiar with, and so you're immediately drawn in to check it out and, you know, see what it's all about. And hey, if you pick up the book and look at it, then boom, you know, that's half of the job of selling the book done there and then. So yeah, already things are pretty darn good. Then you have this delightful slip that takes up maybe just over a third of the cover. It's a black slip that features the four Beatles, a la the cover of the Let It Be album artwork. And again, I think it was chosen as it directly contrasts the rest of the image on the cover. You know, just over half of this book is not so familiar content, and just then less is completely familiar, which in a sense is exactly what Peter Jackson's docuseries is all about. Some of it is the Beatles story that we do know, but crucially, a lot more than half of it is stuff that we don't know. And no, I don't think I'm reading too much into this. I think this is very specific, you know, illustrative design work here. And then finally, you have what's underneath the slipcover, which is, again, quite simply a incredible picture of the Fab Four at Twickenham. Now, I don't think this photo was chosen lightly, as again, it reflects the movie's themes that it's associated with. It's all four of the Beatles at their instruments, making music together, you know, having fun, being collaborative. And even crucially, you have John smiling. It's also an image of the Beatles that we're not particularly familiar with either. It's not a classic or famous one. And, you know, it is just such an awesome image, you know. So there you have it again. You have the familiar slip cover, the, the black funeral cover, and then you pull it down like some underwear, and then you have this fresh new look at the Beatles, quite literally from an angle that people have largely never seen before. With all the Beatles engaged, and dare I say it, even happy, you know, and again, we are all once again subliminally letting the viewer, the reader, the potential buyer know that this is something they literally haven't bought before, which is always increasingly rare in Beetledom, right? On to the first part of the book anyway, let's open it up, going past the title page, and we have the foreword by none other than Sir Peter Jackson. I've mentioned on this podcast several times before, uh, you know, especially, especially during the lengthy lead-up to this series, formerly a single film, but yeah, I am a huge fan of one Mr. Peter Jackson, and I was unbelievably overjoyed when I found out that he was going to be at the helm of this project. I mean, if you think I'm a Paul McCartney Beatles nerd now, well then you should have seen young teenage Sam at the height of the Lord of the Rings craze. And, you know, I wasn't much of a reader back then, but by golly, I read all of those books and all the supplementary material, and I bought video games and tabletop war games and clothes, and I made swords and stuff like that. You know, I was really into it. And so, and so were all my friends. That was my first real nerdy thing. And, you know, I devoured Jackson's film trilogy over and over again. I still meet up with friends several times a year to watch them all in one big sitting. I wish I had Beatle friends that I could do the same with Jackson's trilogy with, definitely. Especially since, you know, with my friends, it's always associated with making food as well. I wonder what I'd eat whilst watching Peter Jackson's Get Back during a marathon. That'd be an interesting prospect. But yeah, Jackson's Lord of the Rings films really endeared me to him as a filmmaker. And even in the bonus features for those films, he even talked about the Lord of the Rings soundtrack being recorded at Abbey Road Studios, and he gets into how much of a Beatles fan he is. And again, not to compare myself to another genius on this podcast, but I'm also the kind of person that will mention the Beatles in anything that I do, given the opportunity. So I know we are kindred enough spirits. I hope you're listening, Mr. Jackson, of course. As we know, the last foreword that we read relating to Get Back was written by Paul McCartney himself, though that one was somewhere between a fluff piece and a PR piece, and right away I can happily report that the short essay we get in this book from Jackson is far more substantial than that. Now, there is an element whereby 
you can tell that he, he didn't want to go into too much detail as he would want to because, you know, A, he wants to let the film speak for itself and B, he wants to leave some stuff to talk about in interviews. And so instead, he does something that all Beatle podcasters and fans alike would certainly appreciate. He tells his own Beatles origin story. It makes sense too. You know, the film itself is a very personal one. The Beatles are a very personal topic to so many people. And for Jackson to meet us on our level here was not only heartwarming and touching, but it was also very shrewd in the sense that it does let us all know on a deep level that he truly is one of us. We read about how he grew up largely without Beatles music until his father brought home a 45 of something and how that was his only real exposure to them outside of the odd TV spot or magazine article. Then we get another look into Jackson's personal life that I again knew about from the Lord of the Rings making of special features in that he was meant to be going out to buy a large plastic model aircraft, which is something I know he's into. But instead, he walked past a shop window rather fatefully one day with the red and blue albums. The latter of which, of course, the blue album would become the poster for this film and the cover of Glyn John's Get Back. And rather than carrying on to the model aircraft shop, he bought those two instead. And it's basically from that point onwards that his whole life changed. He was introduced to some of the best music ever and he became a lifelong Beatle fan. And, you know, right at the end of the forward, he even thanks the younger version of himself for buying those records, not only because it made him a fan, but it also meant he got to do Get Back as well. As we continue, he does get into a bit more meat of the project, pointing out how he isn't here to tell the Get Back story, but instead he discusses how negatively the whole narrative had been received up until that point, and rather than focusing on what was said in the previous documentary or after the fact in interviews, he points to the idea that these sessions are, for better or for worse, legal or not, viewed through the fandom via the bootlegged, low-quality Nagra reel tapes and some footage. And from his perspective, it's no surprise that this part of the Beatles story was not warmly embraced, and how, with his technical wizardry, he would finally be able to correct that fallacy within the fandom and, you know, show us the correct story... That was always meant to be told right from the get-go. So it's almost like he's personally on this crusade to redress ill-gotten balances. And, you know, as someone who prefers Pipes of Peace to Tug of War, I can also agree with that sentiment as well. But yeah, as brief as this forward is, I was certainly pleased with Jackson's short essay in this book. It was nowhere near as throwaway as a certain other forward that we've discussed on the show. And just any insights into the mind of this genius and his process was always going to go down well with me. And, you know, the fact that we actually get this little forward, especially since we don't get anything from Jackson himself in the docuseries or anything with his voice, you know, it, it was certainly most appreciated. So, yeah, pretty darn good if I do say so. Next up is a segment of the book that at first had me a little perplexed before then becoming the unexpected, enlightening highlight of the entire thing. This is the introduction segment written by Hanif Qureshi, titled All You Need. For those of you not in the know, Hanif Qureshi is a playwright and sometimes screenwriter here in the UK as well as a novelist and a very highly regarded one at that normally topping the greatest UK writers of recent years and of all time. Though, despite that, this introduction may be skipped by a lot of people. This isn't an introduction to the literal work you're about to read, and it's not, you know, just a list of Wikipedia-based facts, and is instead a more artistic, thematic introduction to the Beatles as artists, as well as heralds of culture. It's very heady, very wordy, very well-read, with lots of references almost like Paul Muldoon's intro to the lyrics book, and I know it will turn off a lot of the casual readers, but it really is one of the most fascinating parts of this book. 
They wouldn't get someone like Qureshi to come in and write this introduction just to tell us the Beatles story up until now, especially since Jackson gives us that in the documentary. So it all makes complete sense to me. And it was genuinely refreshing to have something so upmarket, shall we say, in a book like this. I mean, okay, Qureshi does do a bit of the history up until now, especially towards the end when he starts reveling in the material of the book as much as we do, and he does give a lot of content and context to the book, but it is hardly the main subject of the writing. You know, it's probably about, you know, less than 15% of the entire thing. Also, just before we continue, I couldn't help but picturing more cynical people out there thinking that Qureshi being of Pakistani descent, was chosen for this book to be a kind of like final layer of defence against any accusations of racism with the No Pakistanis version of Get Back, as well as the Commonwealth song, something Jackson directly addresses in the docuseries. But I just want to point out that that's totally not the case here. Um, this might be some mad thing that I thought of in my own head, but I couldn't not address it. And, you know, I just want to point out they've chosen this man because he is an incredible writer and he has given us a genuinely unique take on the story that we had and hadn't heard before. And he that's exactly what he delivers. Throughout the text, Qureshi flirts back and forth between a semi-autobiographical take on his life and how the Beatles impacted it, as well as a more academic approach to the Beatles' impact on society and culture as a whole. And together, these two paint a very three-dimensional picture of the scale of the Beatles' influence on modern pop culture. You know, very little of it is generalised, and he offers so many specific points that reinforce just how every facet of society was affected by the Beatles. And like Jackson in the foreword, Koresh's own personal stories with the Beatles in his youth let us know that he is also one of us. Being that he is of immigrant Pakistani descent and even a bisexual, several of Qureshi's own stories have focused on the other in society, as well as class divide, uh, tradition within the modern world, and the complexities of human relationships. And why am I bringing it up? Well, it's relevant because Qureshi talks about the Beatles and, to a lesser degree, their manager Brian Epstein as outsiders in this world and how they became these great uh, figures that leveled the world of art you know they, they 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 didn't bring it down they just made it fairer and how the Beatles made art widely available to the wider public he really emphasizes as someone who grew up and experienced the 50s and early 60s that the Beatles proved several things to the world that really rocked the foundations of everything they demonstrated that the working class lads could rise to the top of the ladder and be very socially mobile. They showed young people could influence the culture as much as gatekeeping old people and that the established authorities didn't always have the correct opinions on what art is to begin with. They proved to a whole new generation that art, any kind of art, was free to be made by anyone who could and wanted to make it. They popularised the art wasn't just something to be made by one monolithic person, but the art of collaboration was also key in its birth. And most importantly, I'd say at least, they showed that art didn't have to be boring. Though, I guess the biggest point he's making in this whole introduction, in a way, is that the Beatles were a true turning point, a real BC to AD nexus event, and there really was no turning back. Culture could not go back to before the Beatles. It's very interesting stuff. I really can't overemphasize just how enthralled I was by his writings, because, you know, he presents the Beatles in this fresh new way that makes them seem even cooler and important than even I had ever really thought about. So yeah, overall, an incredibly interesting part of this book, and certainly something that we've never really read before, which is totally appropriate considering this book and Jackson's project and for me at least it got me in the right mindset of not taking this whole Beatles malarkey lightly this is serious stuff it's a serious topic with serious worldwide cultural consequences but he also does that whilst reinforcing that same kind of heartwarming 
we all love the Beatles, how awesome are the Beatles, aren't they great kind of tone that you need at the start of something like this. You know, it, it just gets you pumped and gets you ready to experience the Beatles, not only just as a band and as a sound, but as four people creating art together live before your eyes. It's very successful at what it does, and I'm really glad he wrote it. And I hope other Beatle book projects in the future have as serious an introduction as this one. Then we come to a section of the book that I liked far more than it's probably worth, but as someone who did a film degree and didn't really do anything with it, I can certainly say that I appreciated the inclusion of a dramatis personae section. Basically, for anyone out there who hasn't heard of a dramatis personae, it's essentially a list of characters that you're going to see in an upcoming work, be it film or a play, or in this case, a documentary slash book. The full page spread includes the full gamut of characters, including the major players like the Beatles themselves, along with slightly lesser characters like Glyn Johns, Billy Preston or Michael Lindsay Hogg, to more minor ones like Yoko, George Martin and Mal Evans, as well as some of the real one-off bit parts and cameos like Linda McCartney, Ethan Russell, Dick James and Peter Sellers. Each person is presented with their name and a fantastic blink-and-you'll-miss-it snapshot taken directly from the movie. Again, I know this is a relatively minor element of the book, but I just love the effect that it had on me as a reader. First of all, the phrase itself, Dramatis Personae, was just a such a fantastically cool way of setting up this narrative in the right way. It made the whole thing feel like a proper Shakespearean play or epic tale or romantic poem about to be told, which it is. You know, there's an air of class and properness that was befitting as something as important as the Beatles. And it gave me, you know, the same kind of thrill that I had when I felt and held my copy of Paul McCartney, the lyrics, in my hands for the first time. I knew that, again, this wasn't going to be another throwaway piece of filler garbage, and that the people who had put this together were taking things as seriously as Peter Jackson himself, and that, you know, this was the official supplement to the movie slash documentary series. Something else I really appreciated was how Linda and Yoko were described as a photographer and an artist, instead of just the Beatles' wives, which was definitely a breath of fresh air. You know, it's glad I'm glad to see that they're not just being shown as the tagalongs. Though, I was a little saddened to not have other minor characters, such as two other wives, like Patty Boyd and Maureen Starkey, included in this persona, but, you know, they are real blink-and-you-miss-it cameos in this film. But so were some of the other people, you know, some of the people who were included in this don't even get speaking parts in the movie. And it's not just Beatle folk that got the axe, you know, the Apple office's receptionist Debbie Wellham and the two policemen during the rooftop concert are also absent, though I imagine that this was because they were trying to keep the surprise of that part of the narrative during the rooftop concert largely a surprise in episode three. Maybe, who knows, maybe it's just meant to be about the Beatles conversation rather than just Mal Evans fobbing off some policemen, but yeah, whatever. In the end, in classic Paul or Nothing fashion, a fleeting, minute part of a larger work is somehow easily one of my favourite and most cherished parts. It's silly, I know, but it, it got me excited for the book ahead, and any time a work can do that should never be underestimated. It was very well done, it had the right tone, it took itself seriously, and I was ready for the book ahead. Speaking of which... It is now time for us to move on to the main meat of this book, which I have mentioned is a previously unprecedented word-for-word -word transcription of the onset dialogue from the Get Back, Let It Be sessions. Just like the three-part series, the entire narrative is presented in chronological order, and so therefore the book two is broken down into three distinct chapters or acts, in the same way that the series was. We have Act 1, Twickenham Film Studios, Act 2... Apple Offices slash Apple Studios, and Act 3, The Rooftop. Well, it's not quite the same as the series, as there is a certain bleeding of events from one episode to the next. You know, like episode 2 has lots of Twickenham stuff at the beginning, and episode 3 has lots of Apple stuff at the start 
as well. And, you know, this book would have you believe that episode one ends with them leaving Twickenham rather than George leaving the band. So there's a slight difference there, but you could still follow it all day to day. Each day is presented as like a, a new quote unquote chapter in the book. So, you know, as the calendar moves throughout the, the, the documentary, you can definitely keep up very easily with what's going on. But yeah. When I say that this section is literally just the transcription of the dialogue spoken on camera, I am not joking. This book is here to help supplement the narrative of Peter Jackson's Get Back. And that is exactly what you get. Aside from a few stage directions that describe who or what is where and what people are physically doing at the time, all you get is whoever speaking in bold followed by the words spoken in regular text. In direct contrast to the previously discussed Paul McCartney lyrics book, there are no after-the-fact musings or interpretations. And so instead, all we have are the words that were actually said on the day. This means, in a way, this is the most honest and direct book about this period, as you cannot get distracted by your own personal biases or even by the Beatles' innate charm, you know? But, you know, also it means that it could be potentially less accurate as you can struggle to indicate nuance or tone, especially things like sarcasm. But the main point here is, is that you just get the words. There is no room for post-mortem interpretation here outside of how you read it, I guess. And that's good. There's no one telling you how to interpret it. You are just having to engage with the book on your own personal level, which is far more exciting, wouldn't you say? Like the original Get Back album by Glyn Johns and the original documentary by Michael Lindsay Hogg, which were supposed to be these fly-on-the-wall, revealing and candid explorations of the Beatles, that is also what you get from this book. You know, it really does feel like, you know, almost more so than the documentary to a certain degree that you are listening in on things that you really shouldn't be. You know, you could argue that, in fact, everything written down here lends an, an even more official quality to these conversations, almost like they're official courtroom documents or something. Going back to a different Paul or Nothing episode, uh, as I said on our Let It Be 50th anniversary one, I'm not a huge fan of studio chitter-chatter, being included uh, as audio on bonus discs. But I must say, right off the bat, with this book, I love the idea of it being filled entirely with nothing but chitter-chatter. It feels more appropriate that it's sectioned off like this. You know, I don't want it with my music. And so to have it all collated in this wonderfully presented package feels like a real deal for me. You know, straight up the idea is just really fucking cool because many Beatle fans, even some of the most diehards, will have heard very little incidental inter-Beatles conversation, especially between themselves. Yeah, we've heard them in interviews and in films and on the radio, but real conversations, that's something that is surprisingly rare. And to read them in this book was a borderline surreal experience. Like, the word novelty falls far too short of what this book actually is, but I can't deny just how fun it was to just picture these guys just having conversations with themselves and with their crew. And not only that, just how educational and illuminating it was to see how these guys work behind the scenes. Also, what I did notice when reading the book after having watched the documentary series was that I was able to hear their voices in my head as I was going through. I mean, the fact that it's all in order helps significantly, but constantly throughout my reread, I was recalling moments from the documentary, and the effect was that it really helped cement these interactions in my brain in a very useful way. You know, you are encouraged at school to learn with audio, learn visually, learn vocally, learn tactilely with your hands, etc. You know, as many ways as possible to help it sink in. And with the documentary 
and the book together. That's two separate ways you're able to learn all of this droolingly interesting information in a much more detailed way. And of course, when you throw podcasts into the mix, you know, all of us who are engaging this material on three fronts should really be experts on it by the end. Should be. Originally, I was going to do this episode in two parts, so as to give a, a different perspective on the book, I guess, to do something a little bit different with the episode, you know, both before and after watching the documentary, but that's the rub. The thing is, Peter Jackson's series is so overwhelming and all-consuming that there really wasn't any point in doing it that way. I mean, I am going to do a little bit of that later on, but I'm genuinely struggling to remember life before the series came out. And all the book does now is remind me of the film. Like I say, you know, rather than existing as the simple transcriptions of conversations that it was before the movie's release, it's now something altogether different and mercurial. Okay, it might be a bit of a jokey overstatement that I can't remember life before the series, but it has to be stated that this book really doesn't fully exist outside of the series. Though, you know, to be fair, unlike the uber Beatle nerds out there who would listen to all 56 hours of the original Nagra Reels, you know, aka the god-tier fans whom I unironically worship for all their hard work, and for them there may not be that much in this book to digest, and there, are, and there may even be some glaring omissions, but to someone who has never listened to all of that content, when I read this book before the docuseries came out, the majority of the material was fresh to me and incredibly exciting to read through. It also meant I didn't have all too many expectations going into this book because, you know, outside of the original Let It Be movie by Lindsay Hogg and some of the bonus audio found on the box set, all of this dialogue, again, was stuff that I hadn't really heard. And so technically it meant it was a book of entirely new content. So if you haven't seen the, the docuseries, and I, I really don't know why you wouldn't have, but yeah, if you haven't seen it, then... For most Beatle fans, this is going to be brand new material. Again, an increasingly rare and more precious prospect in this fandom. Anyway, back to my original point. At the time of recording this episode, and from now on into the future, I really don't see much point in reading this book if you are not going to watch the Peter Jackson series. Now, this isn't me saying that the book is worthless on its own or anything like that, and I would never imply that. It is anything other than a prestige work of non-fiction literature, but to imply that it's a completely standalone work is pretty ridiculous. I mean, I would certainly agree that it's more of a standalone than something like George Harrison living in the material world, that coffee table book, because there is no point reading that if you haven't seen the documentary, because, you know, I did learn a lot about these sessions before the series debuted, and I'm sure you still could use it on its own and get a bunch of use out of it, especially when we got onto the, my next point in a second, but... It is when it's combined with Jackson's series that you truly get the best perspective and view on this period in Beatle history. Not only that, but the two make each other just straight up more enjoyable, and you get to immerse yourself entirely in Get Back with no possible hope of escape. Not that you ever would want to, anyway. So, something I was indeed happy to, to be proven right on, and something that does need pointing out with this book, is that it's not just a direct transcription of dialogue exclusively featured in the movie. Yes, as you read through the book, you will constantly come across both little snippets as well as large chunks that are not spoken in the film. These can either be extended conversations that only partially appear in the series, or even whole quote-unquote scenes that do not appear. The book also points out songs that don't make their way into the series, including Paul's own Every Night and Teddy Boy, as well as a whole host of 50s and early 60s rock and roll standards that they were toying around with. Now, right away, I was personally extremely excited by this, as not only am I a huge Beatle nerd that is ravenous for more info, but it also got my mind whirring as to other possible edits of the series. But anyway, regardless of what the specific content is, you know, as there are far too many individual instances to point out, the fact that you get stuff not featured in any of the three episodes means that if you want to know the most about what was said, then you straight up need to buy the book. Though I know many of you cheeky sods out there have already ripped the series in its entirety and transferred it to your own bootleg DVDs. But yeah, if you're an 
honest Beatle fan waiting for the Blu-ray release and you don't do streaming, then pick up the book. Still, I cannot be more clear on the issue that, and there are no two ways about it, for the full, official, fully realised perspective on these sessions, you need the book and a Disney Plus account to watch the series. It's the only way you're going to get the full picture. On the other end of the scale, though, we have the negative side of a lack of 100% faithfulness. As you read through the book alongside the docuseries, rather quickly you do realise that the dialogue doesn't match exactly what's on screen. Of course, a lot of this is down to editing, especially when you don't see the Beatles speaking directly, and also because the Beatles themselves talk quite informally, and that wouldn't translate necessarily rather well to the written word. But there are large sections where there's a certain dissonance if you're trying to follow along, and you know the words are simply are not the same, even if the gist is. Now, if you're looking for a literal transcription, I was fortunate enough to find a website called tvshowtranscripts.ourboard.org, which has done exactly that. And it is free, so be sure to check it out. Links will be in the description down below. In addition, though, to complement the parts of the book that are not in the film, there are also large sections of the film that do not appear in the book. For example, whilst Paul's reading of the tabloid papers is in the book, the brief jam where Lennon's describing George Harrison assaulting a photographer is not. And again, there are many other examples that I don't have time to go into right now, but you wonder whether this is an editing thing with Jackson making changes or whether they simply didn't want to spoil everything that was going to appear in the film. I mean, of course, they weren't going to write down every non-sequitur and random clip that was used, but there were several times where I went, oh, that's a shame that that wasn't included. Again, the overall result is, as I've said numerous times now, you need both the doc and the book to complement each other. You also don't get the interviews with the Apple Scruffs, the public interviews during the rooftop gig, or any of the police interactions, but I really wasn't expecting them to be in the book either. And I do understand that they would want both products to be somewhat different to encourage you to buy both, but it does mean that you aren't able to fully read along with the film in its entirety. Like, there'll be bits where you either have to stop reading the book or stop watching the film due to the lack of continuity between the two. Of course, there's a large part of me that is glad that they both contain information not featured in each other, as it does make them far less reliant on the other and makes engaging with them individually far more satisfying. But in that single rare edge case incident of doing them together for story time, it is slightly annoying, but that's literally the only negative I can think of with this book. Now, I've touched on this already, but the main walkaway coming to the end of this book is whether it was always intended to contain different information as seen in the film, or was it composed at a time when the edit was different to the final one we saw on Disney+. Plus. We all know that Jackson rather like the Lord of the Rings films in King Kong, was making his final edits only days before the premiere, as is his style. And so it's very possible that the publishers and editors only had a previous edit of the series to work with, and maybe this book is only faithful to that cut, and it's Jackson's new edits that have caused a certain discordance between the two. Either way, again, relatively minor issue, and it doesn't take away from the majesty or the objective quality of each product and finally we've come to a part of the book that at least makes an effort to do what Jackson neglected to do in his docuseries and that's have a look at what happened after the sessions this section is the afterward and it's called what happened next written by John Harris yeah I'm not gonna lie despite the fact that this book did bother to include some information about the events after the rooftop and you know even acknowledge that it wasn't necessarily the end of the story it really wasn't enough like yeah we do get almost literally everything i did ask for when i was criticizing part three of the docuseries go back and listen to the episode if you haven't already but i was expecting a little more than just two pages like yeah you know you've done goofed when there's a two-page section in a massive work where i didn't like it more than the actual you know, subjects matter itself. I mean, I'm not saying I don't appreciate the fact that we actually get to find out that George, Paul and Ringo re-recorded I Me Mine, that Old Brown Shoe went on to be the B-side of the Ballad of John and Yoko, or that Abbey Road even existed, etc. But it's really more of an afterthought than an afterward. 
This is most apparent when you get to the subject of Phil Spector. And hey, I am by no means a Phil Spector apologist. He was an awful fucking human being, but he did still produce Let It Be, the Let It Be that we all know and love. And whilst I wasn't surprised that, you know, the book decided to do Spectre a little dirty in this section, I was surprised at how little of a mention he does get on these final two pages, almost like he's literally being rewritten out of history. It's basically just like, oh yeah, someone named Phil Spectre produced it, and no one liked the orchestrations, and it didn't get good reviews. You know, of course it's fantastic that Glyn Johns is getting his fair due, late as it is, but it's not fair to minimise Spectre's, frankly, brilliant work on this album just because of the stuff that happened after. And yes, the section is called What Happened After, but him being that total cunt who shot some poor woman in the face is not part of that story, and to minimise it just just felt a little... I don't want to say poor taste, because you can't treat Phil Spector with poor taste, but it wasn't the truth. And it gets even more egregious when we get more space dedicated to the Let It Be Naked album and how good that was and how much the Beatles liked it and how well it was received, even though it's largely been forgotten and made irrelevant by the 50th anniversary edition. So yeah, in summary, this section was appreciated but not particularly fair or well-rounded enough to truly fill in all of the blanks. So thanks, but no thanks at the same time. And if this is what Peter Jackson would have done to add an appendices to the end of the Get Back documentary, then I am glad he didn't do it. Now, despite the fact that we've come to the end of the book, we haven't done a full review, as there is another equally important visual element to this book, and that is the photography by Linda McCartney and Ethan Russell. Also, I should note that there are lots of far smaller photos that are just screen grabs from the movie, but they are interspersed with the dialogue and do not get the same focus or grandeur or space of these two aforementioned photographers. This book is full, full to the brim of, frankly, incredible, highly detailed, well-presented photographs of the Beatles and of the sessions in general. Okay, so normally when you say that there are loads of pictures, that's usually a euphemism for how little content there really is in the book, and the implication is that the publishers sought to pad out the text with pictures to get the page count up. Well, I can say that with complete confidence that is not the case here. The book would already be a sizable enough publication in its own right, and would have been full to the brim with new and exciting, revealing and pertinent content for us to devour. But... What the mass of photography in this book does is simply put the icing on the cake. It's the je ne sais quoi, it's the coup de gras, if you will. Of course, this book is to supplement the docu-series, and said series is primarily a visual format, and so it would make sense that there would be an array of gorgeous photography to further assist that supplementation of content. And yeah, that's what you get. And yeah, the actual proper photographs that we get in this book are truly a marvel to behold, not only because of how well presented they are and the quality of the definition that they are shown in and how beautiful they look in their full page, sometimes two page spreads, but also the subjects of what they show. You know, the documentary shows us an already unprecedented series of up close and candid images of the Beatles and this book does exactly the same but the only difference is is that they are still and unlike the written content in the rest of the book, the photographs are largely, almost totally, different from what we see in the film. This is because the film cameras used were large and bulky and were not able to give the same freedom of movement that Linda and Ethan could hold within their handhelds. This means that not only do we get moments that were not captured on film, but brand new angles of moments that we do know. And besides, it makes sense that the book would focus on these two photographers as much as it does, because Jackson literally takes the time to slow down the docuseries to focus on the photographers taking their photos and then showing the photos that they took. You know, they were part of this project and therefore they are part of this book. It fits. Whoever chose the photos for this book, though, really knew what they were doing and what we would want from a book like this, as we get a wide range of group shots, personal portraits, all with different angles, different camera positions and moods, captured that truly keeps you coming back 
just to soak them in some more, sometimes more so than the content elsewhere in the book. And just like the cover at the start of this review, the photos in this book do truly live up to the main objective of the book, which is to offer a new perspective on these sessions, and you literally get that with these. They are astounding. They're just truly brilliant. I really enjoyed the photography in this book. Now, on to my closing thoughts for this release. On the whole, I am truly positive with this one. I really recommend it. I really do. And yeah, there's a certain bias because I was sent it for free by the publishers. But aside from that, folks, even if I'd bought this, whether with my own money or very kindly donated Patreon cash, I would have recommended this. I was already enjoying it before the docuseries came out, but once Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back on Disney Plus was released officially, everything just fell into place. Like, this book and the documentary together was like the Beatles songs and Billy Preston joining the session. You know, everything just fit. It made sense. And, you know, you are going to learn so much about these sessions. I am not a Beatles expert by any means, and therefore I learned so much from this book. If you think you know everything, I'd still get it anyway, just to double check, because there is so much to digest in this book. You can't just watch the documentary series on its own and think you know it all. You do need this book to supplement it. And yeah, that might be a bit of a con, but fucking hell, guys, it's a business. People are here to make money, and they do give you your money's worth. It truly is worth the content within. All of the writings outside of the transcriptions are all extremely well put together and thoughtful and thought-provoking. The transcriptions themselves are truly enlightening and insightful and will offer so much information to both new Beatles fans and hardcore fans alike. And the photography, again, I really can't stress this enough, it's just beautiful. You know, some of those two-page spreads really just wow you. You have to take a step back just to appreciate them, you know. But on the whole, this book is a resounding success, in my opinion. It's far more worthwhile and far much more important to read than the 50th anniversary get-back book that came with the box set. You know, this is really opening a new door on the get-back slash let-it-be sessions. There is actual stuff to learn here. So many Beatle books you read, it's just the same information over and over again. That is not the case with The Beatles Get Back, the book. I give it two thumbs up. I'd give it 9 out of 10 and 92% if we're going that specific. I fully recommend it. I hope you've all bought your copies. If not, go out and grab one now. I'm sure it's gone down in price now that some of the hype is over. And if you've loved Peter Jackson's documentary series and you feel like you want to learn a little bit more, my gosh, do you ever need this book? It is one of the best additions to a filmic work that I've ever encountered. It's so fully realised and well done and well put together. It is the Paul McCartney, the lyrics of Get Back product. You know, we are so lucky this year. We've received so many high quality Beatle books and this is certainly one of them. The long and short of it is, go out and get it, folks. Right, there we are, everyone. That is my full review of the Get Back by the Beatles 2021 Coffee Table Supplementary Book to Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back on Disney+. Plus. Ooh, that's a long sentence. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it at least half as much as I have enjoyed this book because that means you really would like this episode to some degree, at least. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for listening. This has been a fantastic episode to do. I've been writing this one for quite a while. I've definitely wanted to give this book its fair due, especially since I've been sent a copy in the post. You know, I don't want to do anything like that half assed But yeah, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Paul or Nothing. I'm not even sure what the next episode is going to be because this is me completing most of the content that I've had on the table for a while. I do need to get around to reviewing uh, Blackbird Singing, the Paul McCartney book of poetry, but I've also got a Cold Cuts and Hot Hits episode that I've started writing. There's Listen With Sam that I need to crack on with as well. Also, me and Ed Chen are talking about doing another music video review episode. And of course, I need to do the 
bonus tracks, the B-sides to the Off The Ground sessions with Ken Michaels as well. So who knows what will be out next week. But either way, there will be another episode. Keep it here to the ground for that one. Again, thank you for listening to another episode of Paul and Nothing. I'm sure Denny Lane's playing us out already. As I always say, keep listening to Paul or Nothing, folks. Keep listening to the Beatles. Make sure you watch Get Back in the 10 or so times. Make sure we get those numbers up. Let's let Disney know that we are interested in this stuff. Maybe they'll finally get a hard day's night help magical mystery yellow submarine and the original let it be up on disney plus for our viewing pleasure i am sorry if you don't have disney plus but that's the world of cooking combos folks but yeah keep listening to paul peace and love peace and love no more autographs harry harry krishna play us out